We have been spending our time in the book of Exodus looking at the redemption that God is giving to Israel as a template and picture of what God was going to do through Christ in redeeming the world from its sins. And we've come now to a a critical juncture in the book of Exodus. This is a very big part now of the life of Israel and the things that are about to happen. As we come into Exodus chapter 19, we are going to see tonight that now we have finally come to the mountain that we've been looking forward to that had been talking by God quite a long time ago where Moses was told, if you remember way back when and trying to understand about what God was going to do and how these things were going to be accomplished and how he felt inferior to do these things and what was going to be the sign of the success and God's primary sign was you're going to come back to this place. You're going to come back to this place. That was the declaration that God had given to Moses. You're going to come back here and that will be proof to you that God is going to accomplish this great victory. And so that's what we're going to look at now in the first few verses of Exodus 19. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 19, notice verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken... We will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Really an amazing scene that unfolds as this opens before us. Uh, Before we can even get into what God says, I just want us just to recognize one of the amazing things, one of the amazing pictures that comes out. So Israel now comes to Sinai. They are encamping before the mountain. And notice it says there in the end of verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now that's quite a way to say that. (laughs) Uh, Not just he went up the mountain. But while Israel is encamped at the mountain, Moses is going to go up to God. What an encounter is about to take place as now Moses is able to go up this mountain to come before God. And now God is going to have this conversation with Moses and speak to Moses these things. And what we're going to notice are are three powerful pictures of what God has said he has accomplished regarding the nation of Israel. And after we look at what God says he did for Israel, 
We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about what that looks like for us under the new covenant, what that means in regards to Christ, and what that means for us as followers of Him. So let's begin in these first eight verses and just consider what God says that He has done up to this point and what that means for these people at this time. You'll notice He begins by describing the redemption that He accomplished. Verse 4. This is what God wants Moses to tell all the people, to tell the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians. Notice that God underscores something. I know that you have seen this and I want you to remember it. I want you to keep it firmly in your mind. You did absolutely nothing and you saw what I did to the Egyptians. Now, what did Israel do to the Egyptians? Nothing <laughs> but be enslaved. And so God just brings us out and says, I want you to remember what I did to them. I want you to remember all that was accomplished back there. I want you to think about how you were enslaved and I brought you out. I was the one that did the plagues. I was the one who parted the sea. I was the one who overthrew the Egyptian armies in that sea. I want you to see what I have done. It is a beautiful picture of what God wants His people to do. You saw what I did. You saw what I accomplished. You saw the power of God. You saw the mighty hand of God. You saw that all that was worked before you. And it wasn't you that brought the plagues or that you that had part of the sea, but it was God Himself. In fact, notice a little bit further when He says there in verse 4, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Really a neat picture again. And in that picture, you have a picture of protection, a picture of deliverance. That God had picked them up and carried them out of slavery. I put you on my back. I placed you on eagle's wings and set you free and carried you out. But I want you to notice all of that boils down to this particular purpose in verse 4. And brought you to myself. Of the three things that are said there, this is the big deal that God is trying to communicate. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings. I protected you and delivered you. And notice that the purpose of all of that was not so the people would say, well, isn't it great that we've been set free? Let's go do whatever we want to do. Thanks, God. We'll see you later. The purpose is laid out at the end of verse 4. I did this work and you saw what I did to the Egyptians and I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to this point. I brought you to Myself. Everything that God did in this exodus had the purpose of bringing these people to Him. To bring them close to Him. To put them in relationship with Him. Now you can come near me. Now we can enjoy this together. I did all of that to Egypt so that you and I could have a relationship together. That is a stunning statement. I want to have a relationship with you. And therefore, that's why I did these things. That's why I did what I did to the Egyptians. That's why I bore you on eagles' wings. It's because I was going to bring you to myself. 
which helps us understand what he says next when he lays out this requirement in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment. This becomes the foundation of the covenant, and that is the basis by which they're supposed to obey. God says, you saw what I did, now obey my voice. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I'm bringing you to myself. Now keep the covenant. Do what I have called you to do because I've set you free and I want to be in a relationship with you. Notice that obedience is expected on the basis of what God has done. Now this is a very big point right here because this is a little bit not what we're used to in our society, but is very common in ancient Near Eastern societies. And that is having a unilateral covenant. We don't really enter into a whole lot of those. You don't have a lot of people just come up to you and say, okay, we're in a covenant and it doesn't matter what you say or do. That's the deal. That's what we're in. We kind of have a little bit of one. You're kind of born into this country, so out of necessity, now you must do the things that are required of the law, whether you like it or not. You didn't really have a choice in the matter. Here you are, and there you go. You can leave, of course, if you want. But there's that kind of idea. And this is what God is doing here. He's saying, I did something. I set you free. I did that to the Egyptians. And now you belong to this covenant and you don't have a choice in the matter. It wasn't like God said to Moses, now I want you to go down there and and take a vote. And let's see if they want to be in a covenant with me or not. It was, here's what I did. Now obey my voice. You have to keep the covenant because that's what I did for you. And that's the way rulers often interacted is in doing those kinds of things and saying, here's the covenant, here's the laws, here's the rules, here's what it is. And that's what God is doing here is saying, I acted, therefore you must keep my covenant, therefore you must obey my voice. Now, in looking at that and thinking about that, that really does make a lot of sense about what God is trying to accomplish. Is because what you have God doing is saying, I want you to be in a relationship with me. I want to enjoy this covenant with you. And so therefore you have this condition of this reward that's stated, verse 5. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. There are these conditional rewards. If you keep my words, if you keep my covenant, if you obey my voice, then here's what's going to happen. Here are the rewards that you are going to enjoy with that. And so here's the idea. What God is doing is saying, I want to have a relationship with these people. And what God has done is proven that He wants to have a relationship with the people by doing what He did to the Egyptians. By showing them, look at the mighty works that I did. Look at what I accomplished in Egypt. Look how I brought you out and bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I am showing you that I want an intimate relationship with you. I want fellowship with you. Now the question is, is that what you desire to have? 
See, you are into the covenant. You've been brought into it. But if you don't desire that relationship, then these blessings can't happen. How is God going to make them a kingdom of priests and do all of these great things for them if the people sit back and go, well, we really don't care that you did all these things? The whole point that's being laid out here is, I have shown you how I want to be in covenant with you and to have a relationship with you. Now, if you will obey my voice, then here we can be in that relationship. And you can enjoy the blessings that I want to give to you. You just need to desire to be in it. Do as I say, keep my voice, hear my words, do all that's commanded to you. And now we can be in this fellowship together. That's what God is pronouncing. You know, often we really do look at God's laws as this, you know, oh, it's so terrible that God give us all these rules and laws. But notice as we're coming into chapter 20, which as you know is the Ten Commandments, how he's setting this up. The things I'm about to tell you are so that you can have a relationship with me. And you saw what I did. And by what I did, now you know that I want to have a relationship with you. And so now the question is, are you going to keep my words and enjoy the blessings of having that relationship or not? It's very much that you think about like a marriage relationship. It takes one person to say, I don't want to have this relationship anymore. And God has done everything he can on his end to show, I want this relationship with you. Now, how will you respond to it? And it is amazing that God operates in this fashion where God does this for the people of Israel. Then notice that what God did not do is he did not come to Moses and say, okay, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I'd like you to go to all the elders of Israel and go before all the people. And I want you to ask them, should I take you out of slavery or not? And if they say yes, then I'll go ahead and send you back and do the miracles and all of that. And then I'll do all these things. But if they say no, then I'll just leave them there and it'll be all right. Because, you know, it's up to them. It is really interesting that what God does is he says, you just sit and watch what I'm about to do. And you respond to that. It's not God coming to you first and saying, would you like me to do this or not? Do you agree to the terms of the covenant? And if you do, then I'll do all these things for you. We're used to operating that way, you know. Uh, if if uh, you come to me and say, okay, well, you do this. Okay, okay, so well, I'll do this. <laughs> Notice what God does is he just goes unilateral here and goes, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. Now, what will you do in response to what I've done? And that's what's being brought out here is these are the things that I want to do. And notice the, the picture of the rewards that are being described here. Here God has said, I want to have a relationship with you. I desire to be with you. And so I'm showing you how much I want that because of what I've done to the Egyptians. And now look at how this takes place at the end of verse 5. So if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, God says, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. If you'll just listen to my voice, we're going to be able to have this special relationship. You're going to be distinct from all the world. All the world is mine. All the earth is mine. And he says, but you will be my special people. You will have an exclusive relationship 
with the true and living God. You will be distinct from the rest of the world. And not only will you be distinct from the rest of the world where we could have this sense that Israel could say, we are the treasured possession of God. That's an astounding picture. That God could look at a bunch of people and say, I treasure you. You're my treasured possession. You're my prized possession. That's how valuable you are to me. If you'll keep my words, if you'll do things that I say, we're going to have such a special relationship such that you can be my treasured possession. Not only that in verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What a picture of an opportunity of what they were going to be able to do before God. You will be a kingdom of priests. By the way, consider how unusual this declaration is because we don't have a priesthood established yet. We have just brought them out of Egypt. And God's first words are, if you'll obey my voice, you will be a kingdom of priests before me. You will be a treasured possession before me. We are going to have such a relationship together that's going to be distinct and unique, unlike anything else in the world amongst all the peoples of the earth. Just obey my voice and you can be a kingdom of priests. And this was the function of what Israel was supposed to do, is to be able to show the world God. To show them this distinct relationship, the beauty of being a treasured possession and show how great that was to the world so that the world would see it and they would glorify God and be drawn to God also. They would look at Israel and go, that is a great relationship. I want to be a part of that. And thus they would function as a kingdom of priests to the world. Look how great it is to be God's treasured possession. Look how great it is to be in relationship with Him. And people all over the earth would look at that and go, we want that too. Thus He would function in this priest picture as Israel would be before God. And then finally, in the end of verse 6, where it says there they would be a holy nation. They'd be set apart. They'd be dedicated to God. They would represent God. They would have such a relationship with Him that God could say, you're my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests before Me, representing Me to the world so the people will glorify Me because you're so dedicated to Me and you desire Me so much and you love Me so much that I can point to you and say, there's My people. That's what God offers right here. As He comes to the mountain and Moses comes up to God and God's first words are, You saw what I did. You saw what I accomplished for you. And this is what I want for this relationship to look like. That you'd be my people. That you'd be my treasured possession. That you'd be my kingdom of priests. Now as staggering as that sounds for these people and what they are being told that they can have, All of that was a shadow of what God was intending in the New Testament when Christ comes. As magnificent as those promises are, and all that Israel was told they could experience with God and being in that kind of relationship, 
We roll forward to the New Testament. We roll forward to the time of Christ. And we begin to realize that these were going to be pictures of the kinds of relationships that God would be able to have with us through Christ. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to talk about what this means in regards to Christ, and then we'll talk about what that means to us. First, let's talk about pictures of Christ in this. One of the scenes that we have talked about many times that the Old Testament is showing to us again and again is the idea that Jesus is this new Moses figure. And that cannot be missed when you come into the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew sets up these last two chapters as if they're happening all over again. In Matthew chapter 4, you have Jesus out in the wilderness... And once his temptations, he goes through all of the temptations in the wilderness, which by the way, just think forward a little bit. How will Israel do with the temptations in the wilderness all these years? Not good. Jesus comes into the wilderness, succeeds. And then what happens next is we roll out of chapter 4 of Matthew, but he passes through Galilee to come to a mountain. And he goes up on the mountain... And his disciples come up after him, and Jesus then declares the covenant to the people and begins with the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, and moves through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is reenacting the Moses scene here of this offer as Jesus has come now and is going to be this new Moses for the people to set the people free. This is what the writer of Hebrews is certainly hitting at as the book opens. Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now Jesus becomes the authorized representative of God. Now it is through Him. Before, here's a great picture. Here's Israel. And who is God speaking through? Moses. Moses comes up to God. Here's what I want you to tell the people. Moses goes down. He tells the people. In fact, after he tells the people in verse in verse 7, he calls all of them together and all the words the Lord had commanded him. In verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. Notice the very last line there. Don't let that slip away from you. What does it say there at the end of verse 8? And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Moses goes up to God. God says, tell the people. Moses goes down to the people and says, here's what God says. The people say, we will do as he says. Moses goes back to God and says, they say they will do all you say. Here is Moses acting as this mediator between the two, moving back and forth. Here's what God said. Here's what you you need to do. People say, here's what we're going to do. He goes back to God and says, here's what they're going to do. And so you have Jesus operating in that function, just as we see Moses operating in this very function. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. And this scene just keeps pushing forward how the Old Testament wants us to see Jesus as that figure, not only as this new Moses who has come to rescue, to set us free from our sins, to set us free from slavery of sin and death, but also a figure of Israel itself that Jesus has succeeded where Israel has failed. I want you to be able to turn over here to Isaiah 49. I don't have this on the screen. I'd like for you to look at it in your Bibles. Look at Isaiah 49. And I've gone through these verses with you a few times, and I'll probably keep doing it until I die. (laughs) 
because this passage is staggering. Isaiah 49. How God lays this out is absolutely mind-blowing. All right, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named, he, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Now, just beginning those first four verses, if you were to read that, the servant is identified, isn't he? It says there in verse three, you are my servant, Israel. Israel is who we are talking about here. And so you read them and go, okay, here's the, the goal of Israel and what Israel was supposed to do. And it sounds like the mission of Israel is not going very well. Verse four, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, but surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with God. I'm going to be vindicated in this. God is going to vindicate me. Okay. But read forward. Verse five. And now the Lord says, he who formed me, from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now you read them go, now wait a minute, I thought the first four verses clearly sounded like we were talking about Israel. But then verse 5 says, here's what the role of the servant is supposed to be. The middle of verse 5, he's going to bring Jacob back to God and he's going to gather Israel to God. Wait a minute, how can Israel be gathering Israel to God? That's schizophrenic, that doesn't make sense. What are you doing there? Well, I want you to notice the expansion that's given there in verse 6. Not only is the role of the servant Israel to bring Jacob back to God and bring Israel back to God. In verse 6, he goes on to say, that's actually too small of a mission. That's too easy for this servant. So not only is he not going, is not only is he going to bring back Israel and Jacob back to God, but their end of verse six says, I will make you the servant as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now that's quoted in the New Testament quite a bit, particularly like Acts 13, where that's directly quoted and says that was referring to Christ. I read this and I go, I thought you said it was Israel right there. One of the great things is that the Old Testament is trying to show in this picture of Christ is you are seeing what Israel has done in the past in all of its repeated failures so that when Christ comes as the new Israel, you are going to see that he succeeds where Israel failed over and over again. For example, you have, we come forward in the New Testament, Jesus is repeatedly called the son of God. He is God's son. And if you remember at his baptism, what is said of this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now remember back in Exodus, we saw God called Israel, my son, Israel is son, but was God well pleased with Israel? No. 
In fact, we have the New Testament saying he was not pleased with them and they fell in the wilderness. In fact, we're going to get there to get a little bit further down the road in the story of Israel and they're coming out of Egypt. And God's going to say, but with most of them, God was not pleased. But with Christ, he is pleased. And so there is this parallel being made where Israel failed in being God's son. Jesus succeeds. We have also Jesus because he is well pleased before God is God's treasured possession. Where Israel fails in that. Jesus is able to operate as the high priest who perfectly intercedes between God and man. Where Israel fails in doing that. Israel cannot stand between the world and between God because of its own indiscretions and sins. And it falls short. In fact, we sort of the things that became the worst lines you will read in the Old Testament again and again is how the nations begin to blaspheme God because of Israel. A failure of the mission. And so Isaiah says when new Israel comes when Christ comes people are going to glorify God. And they're not going to look at Him and see a failure in the mission. He's going to accomplish all that God had set out for Israel to accomplish. He's going to do it. Where Israel fails, Christ succeeds. And so these pictures that are being given to us here in Exodus are critically important for us to see because the New Testament will stand on that information and say, now Christ came and He's done all of those things. Now let's roll that forward a little bit more because now the New Testament also describes us as that new Israel and enjoying that relationship in Christ. Over and over again, the Scriptures will say, you know you've been set free for a purpose. Back here in Exodus 19, what did God say? You saw what I did, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and your purpose was that I would bring you to Myself, so that you would now be a treasured possession, so that you would be able to bring glory to Me as you would operate as these kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You'll notice Paul uses the very language of the Exodus and says, You now have the Israel purpose. You will be the treasured possession. You will be God's people in the way that God had promised it to Israel in the past, but Israel fails in the mission to do that. Christ comes and succeeds. And all who belong to Him are to be the prized, treasured possession and enjoy that relationship with God. Look over again and and, and you look at what God is beginning to tell them by the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 2 and in verse 4, it says there, As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So notice what he's saying here. Here's what Peter gets at. Okay. The living stone was rejected by men. There's Christ. Okay. He's true Israel. He's the Moses figure. He accomplishes everything that God had intended for him. And verse 5, you yourselves, guess what? You're a part of that too. You're being built up in living stones so that you are a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering these sacrifices before God. Now notice verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. Notice the idea. Israel fell. Israel failed. They fell because they disobeyed the word. So this whole imagery of look back at the Old Testament and look how Israel did not succeed. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, But now you have received mercy. Peter uses the exact language of Exodus 19, 4, 5, and 6. And says, Israel back there failed. They disobeyed. They didn't listen to the word that God had told them. But then verse 9, notice that contrast. Not you. You are a chosen race. You're the royal priesthood. You're the holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. And notice the purpose that's given, proclaiming the excellencies of him who've called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's that priesthood imagery, going to the world and having the world see how great this relationship is before God so that they will want to be a part of it. That's what Israel was supposed to do. That's what God is offering as they come to Sinai. The very first words out of God's mouth, you can be my treasured possession. You can be my holy nation. You can be to me a kingdom of priests. You can enjoy all of that. In fact, if we had more time, Revelation 1, what does John say? You've been made a kingdom of priests. The very same language again. Very same words. This is who you are. This is your very purpose. God made them a people who had received mercy. And His purpose for our redemption is so that we would be the chosen race, that we would be the holy nation, that we would be the royal priesthood, that we would be this prized possession to God, that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We belong to God with this big purpose. And the setup is the same. In Exodus 19, God said, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. And I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You will be a treasured possession, a holy nation, the kingdom of priests. Now God stands before us and says, You saw what I did at the cross. And you saw what I did to Satan and sin and death. You saw how I destroyed it. You saw how I accomplished victory. Now, if you will obey my voice and keep the covenant, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's treasured possession, doing the very work and fulfilling the mission that God had first desired for the people of Israel, yet they had failed. It is a beautiful picture of why we must obey the voice of God. Is because God is looking back and saying, don't you see what I did for you? Do you see what I've accomplished for you? And now I have a purpose for you. And what is so great about what God was saying to those people back there in Exodus, it says, I've redeemed you. I did all that to Egypt so I could bring you close to me. And you know how often the New Testament will say that you've been brought near by the blood of Christ? Because that's the purpose of redemption. Is that all that God is trying to do is show you how much He wants a relationship with you. All He wants is to show you through those great acts how much He desires to be in a relationship with you. And that's why He did those things. And now He comes forward to us and says... The way for us to be in relationship and to be reconciled and to have the intimate relationship of being a treasured possession and to be a priesthood and to be a holy nation is if we'll listen to his voice and keep the covenant. That's what's supposed to motivate our obedience. That's why we want to turn away from sin. That's why we want to serve our God with all of our heart. Not because it's a bunch of rules. But God is saying, do you see how badly I want to be with you? Look at all that I've done. And if the Exodus wasn't amazing enough, how God could stand on that great point and say, look what I did to the Egyptians. Can you imagine us? As God would stand before us and just simply say, Do you see what I did at the cross? This is why Romans 5 will use words to say that God proved or demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. This is how he wants us to have relationship with him. And seeing that purpose seeing our mission, seeing why God drew us to Him, I hope will give us a greater motivation to fight temptation, to be strong in the faith in the face of trials, to move forward in being lights in the world, to be that salt of the earth, to shine as priests before God, showing other people why it is so amazing to be a child of God and how being his treasured possession is more valuable than any other relationship you could ever experience. God did that for us. May we go forward 
living our lives appropriately to the calling that we've been given. We're going to sing a song now, and we invite you to come to Jesus this evening to see the great love of God and to see here even in the book of Exodus, God was picturing a magnificent view of redemption that He'd be accomplishing for us in Christ. And now we can be His treasured possession if we'll listen to His words. May we be all the more dedicated to do so. May we turn away from our sins and follow Him and serve Him with all of our heart. If you're ready to be a disciple of His, will you take advantage of that this very night to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, to become a child of His, and to live the mission that's been given before us as His prized possession as a kingdom of priests. If you're ready, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?